again in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Tuesday evening, where we have the opportunity to reflect into the great ancient Christian thinkers of the Catholic Church and primitive Christianity. And as I usually have John O'Hara with me each and every Tuesday, uh, you may know my guest today, George Wing. He has joined me a few times, and so uh, you know that he is a great guest to have on here, and I've, I've asked him to join me again. So, George, it is great to have you with me another evening. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. So, George... I just use some phrases that I've had some great conversations with, you know, the great ancient Christian thinkers and primitive Christianity. Those are phrases that would almost suggest that Christianity um, is, is a bit out of touch, uh, primitive, archaic. It lends itself to this idea that, well, Christianity needs to evolve. So you know, why do we study the church fathers? Well, in my mind, primitive suggests pure Mm. Otherwise, people wouldn't be doing the paleo diet. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Amen. So, yeah, I mean, here we have a primitive uh, Christianity. What's relevant? Well, we must understand, George, that the nature of truth itself is, uh, is not subject to time. You know, my wife and I, we went, just took a trip to Yosemite uh, with uh, my wife's family, my wife's side of the family. We were there for uh, seven, eight days, and uh, what a trip. What a visit into what I've come to call God's cathedral. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing place, George. And one of the places that you just have to go see are the, the, the big sequoias, the giant sequoias. Mm-hmm. Amazing. These trees, George, range from 1,700 years old to 2,500 years old. It's so overwhelming. I think primitive can mean ancient beauty. Amen. And yeah, there you are standing before this tree and you're just in awe of its beauty, its presence, the way it just draws you into beauty. It's Mm -hmm. so striking. And this tree, you know, 1700 years Mm -hmm. ago, there it was, 2500 years ago, there it was. The tree didn't evolve to be something that it was not, George. It was always a giant sequoia. Huh? Mm-hmm. It was always there. It was always cooperating with its essence. Uh, fascinating. In the presence of sequoias, there are no teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> right? You find out you don't know everything. Yeah, yeah that's right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of well said. Expunges adolescence from it. Yeah. Amen <laughs> to that. And I, I, I go there and, and I talk about that because um, in light of the giant sequoia, and you can talk about a great number of um, just awesome natural Uh, appeals, but the giant sequoia is what has grabbed me recently, and that's why I shared on air today, because uh, we can learn a lot. Yeah, does does the tree expand, grow? Yes. I mean, it is said that each and every year, it adds a layer of bark. That's why it's it's so thick, Mm -hmm. Uh, just not at its base, but to the tip, you know. So the idea here is the essence of a thing uh, and, and the truth of it is not subject to time. That is to say, it doesn't mean because 
you know, 2,000 years later, it, it is made to evolve in a way where it is no longer what, is, what it is in its essence. And as it relates to Christianity, we must remember something, George, that the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, <laughs> its most fundamental vocation is to bear witness to Christ who is not a way, a truth, and a life, but the way, the truth, and the life, as John 14, 6 reminds us. And that verse is in the imperative sense, absolute and unchanging. Yes, Jesus is the expression, the way, the truth, and the life. We follow not a principle, but a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is so radically different from other religions. And um, Jesus truly is at the center. He's the embodiment of the truth that we seek. And that truth is is a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when St. Paul is writing to, uh, to his pal Timothy, and he says, hand on the deposit of faith, mm -hmm. he's not talking in abstract terms. You know, George, he's talking about a real person, because again, as I've said before, and I could never say enough, doctrine is not about something, but someone. So he's encouraging uh, and exhorting Timothy and those around him to hand on the faith, because what we're doing is handing on a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. I think it's important too, Joe, to not to dismiss this period as at the time of primitive Christianity, and um, for the reason that we have, we're so indebted to them mm -hmm. that this mm -hmm. these, this tiny seed planted by Paul and Barnabas there in Asia Minor was watered by the blood of martyrs and was shaped and formed and pruned and tended by great leaders and great theologians such as Gregory of Nazianzus, mm -hmm. who was one of three great church fathers from that area of what is now Turkey known as Cappadocia. Mm -hmm. So we see Turkey as like a big rectangle and Cappadocia being right in the center. I bring out the geography because when we talk about the Cappadocian Fathers, it's easy to confuse that with Cappuccino. Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> uh, another one is Capybara, yeah. <laughs> which I'm intimately associated with having taken one out with a 22 years ago in Guatemala. Mm. And yes, they do taste like chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't want, you know, Capybara, Cappuccino, no, 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 Cappadocia, and it's not in Italy. Yeah. It's one is now Turkey. Of course, Back in the old days, that was a Roman province. What is now Turkey was not inhabited by Turks. It was inhabited by Greeks. Mm -hmm. So we have here uh, some painful history to recount, knowing that of the five great seas of early Christianity, that is, bishoprics, four of them are now in Muslim territory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fifth one, Rome, which is still in an area that's, well, it's greatly secularized, but nominally Christian, is in the sights of the very people who dominate the news now in the Middle East, ISIS. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. the war continues. Yes. And um, so I think it, it's kind of sobering as we look at the background of St. Gregory. If we are using contemporary lenses that we see what has happened over the centuries mm -hmm. to these places that are of such great historic importance to us as modern Christians. It's just, but that's a sort of a, that's a sideline. Anyway, St. Gregory, of course, the close companion, intimate friend of St. Basil the Great. So we have two archbishops of Constantinople who helped to form each other mm -hmm. in a, such a beautiful way and a monastic brotherhood and a unique relationship. There's so much we can be thankful for 
and when we look back on the um, the early church fathers, this association of these two great men, and then of course the other Cappadocian father, Saint Gregory of Nyssa. Oh, by the way, Nazianzus. Now we're going to look at this phonetically, and that's how we want to pronounce it. Yes, I believe the Greek Nazianzus, which sounds to me more Portuguese than Greek. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. You know, George, you talk about that relationship with St. Basil the Great, and, and I think that's really important, especially when you really want to get to the heart of this man, St. Gregory, who we are talking about this evening, this man who has this deep monastic heart. Last week with St. Basil the Great, we took note, and it was very important for us to understand this. In many ways, John Paul II talked about this, in mm-hmm. many ways, we talk about the monastic rule of life with St. Benedict but we can really attribute it to St. Basil the Great. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, here you have this man, St. Gregory, who is a close friend of his. And how important is that? This whole idea of friendship, you know, Proverbs 13, 20, I think it is. (laughs) Uh, Those who hang out with the wise will also be wise. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 32 and 33, that talks about Hanging out with the unwise will ruin your morals. So this is very important. You saw this on the lips of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, I no longer call you my servant, he says in John 15, but now I call you my friends because you know me. So friendship in many ways, uh, George, is at the heart of our faith. And so it's important to take this up because of the influence St. Basil the Great had just not um, on Um, our figure tonight, St. Gregory, because certainly St. Gregory offered, I think, something for St. Basil as well. But as it relates to what he offered him, certainly uh, insight into the monastic life. And I wanted to uh, read something here as it relates to their friendship. And this is directly from one of St. Gregory's great orations. He says, not only did I feel full of veneration for my great Basil because of the seriousness of his morals and the maturity and wisdom of his speeches, but he induced others who did not yet know him to be like him. The same eagerness for knowledge motivated us. This was our competition, not who was first, but who allowed the other to be first. It seemed as if we had one soul in two bodies. Mm-hmm. It seemed as if we had one soul in two bodies. The union of their individual souls with God, because they are saints, mm-hmm. that's recognized. But when you think of the collaboration of two such people and the deep union then that they would experience because of their singular devotion to seeking God's will, mm. And it's communion on the highest level. Mm-hmm. We all experience as baptized Christians some level of communion, even those outside of the circle of our immediate Catholic faith in some way are in relationship to us. But uh, then to take that to the next level and to be in communion, to receive the body and blood of Christ um, frequently and to um, then be part of a parish communion and then a diocesan with under a bishop, and then part of a worldwide communion. But then to find within that community of faith like-minded people who in the area of spirituality really excel Mm -hmm. and who share our own deep desire to obey God and to follow his will. And Basil and Gregory had that. So it really is steel on steel. Yeah. Yeah. 
He has another beautiful um, piece I wanted to read here in light of what you were just talking about, George. Um, and this re- this uh, goes into his uh, his spiritual meditation, his reflection, the kind of um, holiness that this man possessed. He says, "Nothing seems to me greater than this: to silence one's senses, to emerge from the flesh of the world, to withdraw into oneself, no longer to be concerned with human things other than what is strictly necessary, to converse with oneself and with God, to lead a life that transcends the visible." to bear in one soul divine images ever pure, not mingled with earthly or erroneous forms, truly to be a perfect mirror of God and of divine things, and to become so more and more taking light from light. Mm. Uh, This is a very contemplative man. We know this man, George, as the theologian. Mm -hmm. And so when we hear that, maybe we think, well, he's this high thinker. But that is not why he is known as the theologian. I mean, we've mm-hmm. talked about a number of great ancient Christian thinkers. We have talked about a number of great men who bore witness to this early Christian faith. But none of them were called the theologian. Why St. Gregory, the theologian? Mm-hmm. There's something deeper going on. With St. Gregory, what we have is his ability to speak eloquently articulately, with great insight, but with simplicity. And he did so. Why, George? Because his words always came out from that deep contemplation. And in fact, that goes so far as to say, George, that if we want to be a good teacher, a good preacher, you know, a good preacher, and I've had a lot of uh, non-Catholic friends talk to me about this, I know I my preaching is going to be good when I'm calling upon the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. when I'm in prayer with God, because I know then it is not me speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through me. This is the kind of thing going on 1,700 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about this man as the theologian, what we have to understand is he's not a man who speaks in a- abstract terms. Mm-hmm. You know, he distills the, the, the Trinity as you know, uh, three great lights and one great splendor. Well, I believe in the Eastern Church, he's ref- uh, the only other person referred to as the theologian is St. John the Evangelist. Yes, yes. And you have this great depth wrapped in this elegant simplicity. You know, here's a man who was a master of oratory, as St. Gregory Nazianzus was known to be a great preacher, mm-hmm. fabulous preacher. Mm-hmm. So here he has a natural gift augmented by the Holy Spirit and wrapped up in this desire to conform one's life completely to that of Christ. You put it that way, George, and what you have is, is a different kind of trinity, huh? From, from gift to the Holy Spirit to desire. And all of that placed on the doorstep of the church. Amen. It's really remarkable. I think we, you know, it's just very humbling to think of uh, someone who has reflect on the life of someone who had so much to offer and who could have cashed in on that, mm-hmm. but who didn't. He mm-hmm. surrendered it to Christ completely. And in the midst of tremendous temptation, he's there in Constantinople, the seat of the Eastern Empire, and um, a very, very wealthy city. Yeah. And you know, is the temptation of schmoozing with the emperor mm-hmm. and with his nasty court. We went to school with him in, in Athens, right? Emperor, well, with, with, with Emperor Julian, that was. Julian yeah, the Apostate, yeah, yeah. and a very, he had uh, penned a very interesting portrait of Julian mm-hmm. as a student, basically pointing out 
the flaws that he saw in his character prior to his ascent to the throne. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, right. So you have, and also I believe Basil was a fellow student. He was, yeah. With Julian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just for the listeners here, after Constantine had legalized Christianity, he was followed um, either immediately or some years later by the Emperor Julian, who I believe reigned for five years, known as Julian the Apostate. Yes. And he attempted to suppress Christianity and uh, re-enliven the old gods, you know, mm-hmm. the, the worship of the ancient yeah. you know, Roman pantheon. Yeah. So, it um, things were not were not settled during the fourth century. Um, the Arian heresy also made its way, and once again, having gained influence in the imperial imperial court, was uh, a threat to the Catholic faith mm-hmm. and to Christian orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, the Arian heresy, of course, denying the divinity of Christ. We see the Arian heresy having reemerged in our own, you know, past century and a half. For instance, with groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, sure, who deny Christ's divinity, and um, I mean, in charity, that's not primitive Christianity. Yeah, primitive yeah. Christianity knew Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. You yes. know, I, as we talk about theology, George, I think we could also stand to define this for our listeners as well. Okay, yeah, theology is the study of God, but in its classical sense, it is fides corins intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope Francis today, you know, today, George, had something to say about the quote-unquote theologian, not theologian in the sense of St. Gregory, but generally speaking, the theologian. He says... The Christian identity is not based on whether or not you are a theologian. It is based upon whether or not you have a living relationship with the Holy Spirit, that you are under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. And he's not demoting the quote-unquote theologian, but what he's saying is our theology, our faith-seeking understanding ceases to be good theology if we are not calling upon the Holy Spirit. He talked about this um, in, in the early, early days, I think it was like his first week of his pontificate where he's talking about uh, the university, and he was really exhorting and challenging all theologians, all professors, to make sure that your theology starts on bended knee, was his mm-hmm. phrase. So, yeah, maybe he was reflecting upon St. Gregory because this is what he teaches us. He's the theologian because everything he did started on bended knee. Truth is founded in humility because mm-hmm. humility is truth. Mm. Uh, standing at the foot of the sequoia, all of a sudden you knew mm. truth. Yeah, like I'm not the biggest thing around here. Yep. I'm not the oldest thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the most enduring thing. Yeah. You used the word purity earlier, George. It's interesting. Mm. The Hebrew word for purity or pure in myth is truth. Mm. Purity and truth mm-hmm. in the ancient mind certainly was one and the same thing. And how do we acquire that purity? But again, on on bended knee. And gold as in refined by fire. Mm. In other words, we have to get out the impurities from the ore mm-hmm. to get the real thing, mm-hmm. that pure element, mm-hmm. gold. And of course, Gregory would have fully understood this and would have been challenged by his friend Basil to allow those fires of purification to burn strongly in their relationship. 
mm-hmm. purifying their love for each other and their love for God. And he, you know, the life of, Gregory's life of holiness is the point of his integrity mm. that m- could make him be the greatest of perhaps of, uh, among the ancient theologians. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's one thing to go to a university and get the degree and, well, I have a master's or I have a PhD. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to be challenged to so fully internalize those things that that you read or study mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, it becomes a singular focus. And there's mm-hmm. a certain beauty in that. Mm-hmm. You're no longer a professor of biology. You are biology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here's Gregory studying the scriptures and studying church doctrine and learning all this on his knees mm-hmm. and a life punctuated by simplicity and prayer and a joy in the simple things in his retirement. He had a little cottage out in the country and had a orchard and mm-hmm. an old fountain. And, and he had people who were you know, perhaps younger men who seeking holiness would come to live with him. And yet having a single garment that he wore, sleeping on the floor, no fire to warm him. And we know Central Asia miners got to get chilly at night. Yep. <laughs> and um, he had a, he, you know, one who was inspired to, in a sense, seek all the virtues. And those of us mere mortals might be <laughs> working on one virtue at a time. Mm-hmm. Here's a gentleman who took them all on. You know, George, I was once asked a question. Joe, what does every saint have in common? Mm-hmm. I think I may have talked about this a few weeks ago. What does every saint have in common? It's a great question. They have lots of things in common, but I'll tell you one thing they all have in common is that they embrace that first beatitude because they know that being poor in spirit mm-hmm. is foundational to what it means to live in God and to acquire those necessary virtues for sanctity and holiness. And to understand that materialism and all of those material goods out there will never fulfill the heart's deepest longing and deepest desire. So what did they all have in common? A heart for the poor. Just not those who who are homeless and and on the margins. Yes, those. And certainly he talks about that, um, St. Gregor, the importance of of going to the sick, sick, and that's where you see mm-hmm. Jesus, but also that it starts with, with first understanding our own poverty. And in that poverty, how we need to long for God the same way our lungs long for air. Now, there's a, a quote here I wanted to read in, in light of what we're talking about right now uh, as it relates to the importance of the corporal works of mercy and, and by corporal works of mercy, in, in layman terms here, what I mean to talk about is, you know, social justice, going to those who are most in need. He says this, This is the one salvation for our flesh and our soul, showing them charity. That is, those who are sick and people living in difficult circumstances. So he understood well that there has to be a continuity between what we say and what we do. Because if there's a disharmony in that truth and in that moment, then fundamentally we cease to be Christian. I think it, um, what you're talking about comes out in Gregory's life in the, 
situation involving, I believe, the Leichi. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, in we, as moderns, especially living here in the United States, we have to have extra humility when we're looking at this situation. Mm-hmm. These are Christians who caved to imperial pressure, offered incense to the image of the emperor, and um, effectively denied their faith. And yet after the persecution passed, sought readmittance to the Christian faith. Of course, many of the congregations had forfeited their life to and, and refused to uh, worship the emperor as a deity. But we have here this beautiful blending of mercy and justice with Gregory. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is in contrast to other Christian groups at that time and I believe his father even at one time was a member of a, one of these puritanical groups that would not readmit to communion. He those was. Who had, yeah, he was. Yes. Yeah. It has a, a, a peculiar name, and I can't pull it up right away, but the, uh, the name of the group. But, you know, St. Cyprian of Carthage dealt with the same issue, and, um, and we potentially could be dealing with this issue now or soon, at least Christians in the Middle East because you have under um, the sword of ISIS people being given an option. You can pay the tax. Oh, by the way, we won't tell you what it is. Yeah. You can leave your ancestral home, or you can submit to Islam. And we're going to have people or hear of people who cave mm-hmm. and who yet later on, if there's any chance that those areas are liberated, are going to seek um to be readmitted to communion with the faith. Mm-hmm. Can't judge them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, I'm a member of Inmo across the street. Okay. I mean, this is too comfortable. Yeah. It looks yeah. like Palm Springs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a big N spray painted on my door. Yeah. And an ultimatum. Uh, well, you can move to Reading. Yeah. Of course, we'll take that in two weeks. You can pay the tax. Oh, yeah, by the way, what are your bank account numbers? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or you can convert to Islam. And, oh, by the way, we just blew up your parish church. Yeah, yeah. All right, so these were, in, what we face today is not unlike what the primitive Christians faced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, certainly in St. Gregory, George, we have so many things to talk about, and there's such a richness to him, so we might be talking about him more next week. George, thank you for the gift of your time. Uh, you always bring such a rich historical backdrop to, to this discussion, and that is much appreciated. So let's close in a quick word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program, or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.